You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, the preacher went, went long today, so we'll, um, we'll go ahead and get started as people come in because we're going to stay in Hebrews chapter 11. I was going to move on to chapter 12, but I, we, we got cut short last week, and I just think that chapter 11 is a really good place to sit for a minute. And, um, and it actually, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and 1 Corinthians 10 have some pretty remarkable parallels, which you will see, uh, because the message really is, is the same uh, when it comes to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, being the answer to all of these things. So let's have a word of prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, you are so faithful to us, and our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it prone to leave even the God that we love. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would take our hearts and seal it, but with the truth of your word that uh, you are for us and not against us. And, Lord, that um, no matter how far we go astray, that uh, you're the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And so, Lord, though, uh, save us from a great deal of trouble in this world and keep us faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, we've been talking about faith rooted in Hebrews chapter 11, which is page 1007 in your pew Bibles, and 1008 is what we're going to look at today. And of course, chapter 11 is a description of faith. It's not a definition of faith. It it, it gives us uh, these examples and these pictures of uh, godly folks uh, who were there uh, and stayed faithful to the Lord. And really, uh, faith means... Uh, in the Bible, to trust, to rely, to depend on someone or something. So uh, there's a big difference between saying, you know, I've been, um, since they've been doing the I-2059 thing, and they say they're not safe to drive on, and yet we still are driving on some of them. I mean, doesn't it make you a little bit nervous, and then you see how high up, and I don't know about, I don't get afraid of heights, but there are some of those overpasses where I'm thinking, I don't like this one bit. And how can this possibly hold up? Now, it's one thing to say, I believe that the new overpasses are going to hold me up. But it's a wholly different thing for me to actually put my faith in them and what? Drive across them. So do you see the difference? Is that faith is actually taking God at his word and trusting him and doing what he said to do even when it's out to go into the unknown. So we talked about Abraham and his homelessness, and Abraham being uh, a great exemplar of faith in God. And really, uh, faith often is contrary to the way that the world would think, especially in terms of Abraham leaving Ur, and it stands over and against biblical faith. And of course, this is the whole Christian life. It's not just in our coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's every day. Because we read a series of instances in Abraham's life. And, uh, and was Abraham just at the crossroads of faith when he was called out of Ur? And then once he did that, life was sunshine and lollipops. No, the author of Hebrews goes to a series of events, ultimately culminating in verse 17, by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
And he who would receive the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, just so he keeps going. But the ultimate act of faith in the life of Abraham was what instance? Isaac, I want to take your son, and not just your son, but your only son, and I want you to take him up a hill, Mount Moriah. I want you to go up into this land, go up to the hill, take the wood, and how does the wood get up the hill? On Isaac's back. And they're going up. Abraham has the dagger, and on the way up, Isaac asks his dad a question. What is it? Where's, where's the lamb? And they get, can you imagine how excruciating that would be? I don't think we can. That's, I mean, the whole way you can, Abraham incapable of making eye contact, much less looking at his son. And so don't think, God himself will provide a, a sacrifice, my son. It was probably spoken through tears, and Isaac becoming very afraid, very uncertain as to what's going on, what's wrong with my dad, why is he having a come apart, this isn't making sense. But wasn't that an act, an act of faithfulness on Isaac's part with his father? And yet in his father's heart he's feeling like, am I betraying my son? And yet my call is faithfulness to God. And even though this is what God has called me to do, I don't know how he's going to work this out, whether he's going to raise Isaac from the dead, because I've already received a promise, haven't I? that out of Isaac will my descendants come. Well, Isaac is not married, doesn't have children. So God has to be able to fulfill that promise somehow. And against all worldly odds, Abraham says, I have to believe that. To the point of actually having the dagger poised above Isaac, and before plunging it, God holds his hand back and says, wait. And there's the ram in the thicket that is provided for and just by way of Bible geography, um, we find out later on that that um, hill in, uh, in the land of Moriah was later on a threshing floor and was sold. And that area, do you know what was built there? The temple. And there on further up the mountain, another same mountain but different area, Calvary. This is the spot. I mean, so anytime somebody says the Old Testament has nothing to show us, so if you go back and you, you can draw the line through it if you know your Bible geography and, um, and the threshing floor and all of that. Anyway, um, so this was the great test of Abraham's faith. And why did he go through with it? Because he knew that God was faithful. Because God had spoken a word to him and God never goes back on his promises. We're about to get into how God doesn't go back against his warnings. Uh, but he doesn't go back on his promises and he fulfilled them. And Abraham didn't. It wasn't for him to figure out how was this going to happen. He just knew God would make it happen. It's a pretty intense picture of faith. And yet that's the call on our lives too. That God has spoken to us through his word. And so faith actually looks like walking in accordance with God's word, which makes us look like complete idiots to the world. 
Now, where I left off last time, that's to catch us up, is we talked about having our hearts set on heaven and that the most miserable person on the face of the earth is the one who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet has their heart set on worldly things. Most miserable person on the face of the earth because at least with an unbeliever, they harbor a sense of hope that actually the worldly thing might do the trick. And if this worldly thing doesn't, well, then maybe that worldly thing where the believer knows none of it is going to work and yet I'm still putting my trust in it. It's the dog returning to the vomit. It's a very vivid picture, but that's the one. And so we catch glimpses of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned where this normally manifests itself in me is when I'm together with brothers and sisters and we're worshiping the Lord together, uh, normally through song. I'm not equating worship with singing. Um, I always think that's so funny when someone says, let's stand and worship the Lord, as if the only way to worship the Lord is singing. That's nonsense. But anyway, uh, but it's normally in singing uh, together and being surrounded by other believers that you begin to catch a glimpse of heaven, you have a taste of it, and when you've had a taste of heaven, you're spoiled for anything less. Right? Nothing less will do. And so you're striving toward this heavenly home that uh, has been uh, prepared uh, for you uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this glory is realized here and now. So reading verses 11 and 12. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So Abraham's faith, God worked through his word, he fulfilled his promise, and Sarah actually was able to see the promise in her own day, wasn't she? Even though she had acted out of unfaithfulness initially, because remember she gave over Hagar to have a son, Ishmael, and yet God was still faithful and gave her the son of Isaac and she saw that in her own life and in the same way I think often God is able to give us glimpses of his faithfulness and the fulfillment of his promises in our own lives and so something you could say about Abraham and Sarah is that they lived a life of fruitfulness both inwardly and outwardly their faith was not just inward their faith was lived out because they really trusted that God was going to do what he said he would do. And so the question that Hebrews is putting to us is, do you think this big? Do you actually think that God is actually able, that God is able to do what he's promised to do uh, in your life? And one of the things that really strikes me is I do know that God doesn't have grandchildren but I know that my faithfulness has an impact on the next generation. And so we are making generations to come by our faithfulness or lack thereof now. Because here we are talking about Abraham who lived thousands of years ago. Why are we talking about him now? Because he was faithful. He was faithful. And so it is, too, uh, with our own children and our grandchildren and those who are around us that our faithfulness actually has an impact 
in the world around us here and now. And of course, as I said earlier, Abraham's faith knew no bounds. Because what we find is that faith is not static and it grows by feeding on the promises of God. God has proved himself over and over and over and over to us. But because our hearts are the way they are, we need that. Right? We, we, we need, need that. And I imagine, uh, not that God necessarily gets frustrated with us, um, but like the hymn says, what, can, what more can he say than to you he hath said? There's nothing else he can say to us. It's already all been said. Uh, but if our hearts were but more faithful, uh, we would love him more and more, and our lives uh, would be much more simple as we rejoice in the Lord. That's a paraphrase of, uh, of a hymn. But today we look at uh, chapter 11. Moving on, so we have this image of, of Abraham, and then uh, we see Isaac, and then we see uh, Jacob, and then we see uh, Joseph, and then we get to Moses. So verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab, a lady, shows up next to Sarah. By Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she has given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're at Moses. We're going to fast forward actually to Moses, although I do want to point out that choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So the book of Hebrews is telling us that Moses is a Christian. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not kung fuing you. I'm just, there's a fly in the room. That Moses is a Christian, and he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What reward was he looking to? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was looking to heaven. He was setting his mind on that city. Now, I don't know if you all have ever seen the Ten... How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? If you don't, raise your hand... Really, has no one ever, really, I want to really see, who's seen the Ten, who hasn't seen the Ten Commandments? Oh, Dr. Pat. Well, uh, I don't know if you ever feel this, but there's the scene where Charlton Heston, also known as Moses, uh, when he's forsaking Pharaoh and stepping away, and even now there's, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, don't throw it away. You actually could stay in Pharaoh's palace and enjoy the benefit of it, and being in a sphere of influence, and, and you could actually be a witness within that place. You don't need to step away from that. 
I don't know if you ever feel that too. But he forsakes it all and he says, no, no, no. Like Abraham, I'd rather go out with God into the unknown than stay in the known without him. And so he goes out with God. And of course, his relationship to Pharaoh changes considerably as a result of that. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Of course, that has to do with the murdering that he committed. And then by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So he's talking here about the Passover. Now this is one of the marks of faith that I've been talking about with you, which is that when God calls you to be faithful to him, it means the world thinks you're going to be crazy. So imagine God says, on this night, I'm going to take the firstborn of everything. Everything. And the only way to avoid the angel of death is to spill the blood of a lamb and to sprinkle its blood over the doorway, over the doorpost. Now, this is similar to, to Noah's situation or anybody's situation. What is the response to that? You're nuts. This is the craziest. Not only are you not, but this is sort of twisted. You're, you're going to do what to a lamb? They're so fluffy. Yeah, they're cute. And you're going to kill it, and then you're going to smear the blood over the doorway? And even if you really cared for your neighbors, and you sort of snuck over, and you started to, what would your neighbors do? Ah, oh, now am I going to clean this up? i got to get the hose out. And, and what a wackadoo. This is, do you not see just how crazy this is? Noah wants you to build a boat. You know, actually the Old Testament tells us in the Hebrew that there's a sense in which what made it crazy was not just Moses building a boat, but there's no record that it ever actually had rained yet. And so the boat's hard enough, but if Moses says, well, there's going to be water coming out of the sky, that's stupid. And yet he did it. Why? Because God told him to do it. God's word said this, and they responded in obedience. And in the same way, Moses responded in obedience, and what did it mean? It meant the salvation of the people of Israel. Because sure enough, God was true to his word, not just his promises, but also his warnings. And he came through, and anybody who had the blood sprinkled above the door, the angel of death passed over. So Moses was faithful in that. And you see here that the author of Hebrews is just using the same ideas over and over again, just using different illustrations. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. So he fast forwards just a bit, and they come to the Red Sea. Now, I actually want to stop here and go to Numbers chapter 14, because I do think that... And anytime you see this in the Bible, I, I hope that you go back. Um, that... Um, that you're able to go back and see where um, something... <laughs> these kids are really great. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. We're going to do Numbers 14 in a little bit. Um, I'm losing my place here. Um, but if you ever see something in the Old Testament, you really, really, really ought to go back and, um, and, and look at it. I'm sorry, Exodus 14. We're going to go to Numbers in a minute. So as they're coming up on the Red Sea, what's the scene? 
Verse 10. Okay, well, I'll just go ahead and verse 9. Chapter 14. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Harahoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses says to them, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent, which was a real task for the Israelites. Now, how is this possible? They have no, they're completely surrounded, and in behind them is the Red Sea. Their observation is spot on. Their grumbling and interpretation of it is off. And Moses says, watch. All you have to do is keep your mouth shut. Now, I want you to read this. This is very important. Verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Pay attention. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Do you see what's happened? Now we all know, if you've paid attention in Sunday school, or vacation Bible school, what led the people of Israel? Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Led them. But here they are at the Red Sea, and what does God do? He goes round behind them, and he stands between his people and the danger that is about to ensue. And then, of course, the Red Sea is parted, walls, wall of water to the left, wall of water to the right. If you know anything about the Red Sea, it is chock full of sharks. There's a really interesting uh, journal of a young uh, midshipman that served in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars and they were dispatched to the Red Sea in order to talk about trying to get some of the shahs and sheiks to take the side of the British against Napoleon who was moving down into Egypt. And he tells in one of his entries that one of the sailors, because it was so hot, jumped off during free time, jumped off the ship into the water. And it says before his body was fully submerged, the water was red. The sharks got him. And so imagine walking through the Red Sea, and not only is there a wall of water here, but you can see what's in it. The sharks swimming around and hungrily looking at you, and they pass through the other side. But this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Do you understand how God fulfills his promises? He comes behind you like a parent ought to do and stands between the children and the danger and pushes them forward and makes sure that nothing is going to come behind them. And that's exactly what God does to his bickering, to his grumbling, to his murmuring children. So do you understand that when you're faithful to God's word, that he not just, he's not just leading you, he comes behind you. 
He puts his army behind you. Because it's not just the pillar, it's the angel, right? That comes behind the people of Israel. But then, interestingly enough, we're going to skip over numbers because we're short on time, but we're going to go ahead and go to Joshua. And uh, Joshua... uh, chapter, well, let me just tell you the story first. So Joshua, uh, chapter 5, we go over all the wilderness or the uh, experience, the 40 days. So this is a fast forwarding of 40 days when we finally get to verse 30. So by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Do you remember the story? The people listening to the author of Hebrews were Hebrew Christians. They knew the story. And here's what it was. Joshua, who had taken over for the people uh, and was leading them, they crossed over the Jordan into, uh, (coughs) excuse me, Jericho. And before the fall of Jericho, this is chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I mean, I hope you're able to see that this is kind of funny. Are you for us or are you for them? No. It's the wrong question. And Joshua is quickly corrected. It's not... It's not, God, are you for us or are you for them? The question is, are you for God? Are you for God? And I think there's strong biblical evidence that the commander of the Lord's armies is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has manifested himself not in the earthly frame that he took before, but Jesus, of course, is from eternity. It wasn't as if he just came on the scene in Bethlehem. And you see here that normally in the Bible, when somebody falls on their face to worship God and they're not God, what does the angel say? Get up. You're worshiping the... But the commander of the Lord's armies not only says, allows Joshua to worship him, but also says, the ground on which you are standing is holy. Why? Because God himself is standing there. So the question to Joshua as they go into Jericho is not, is God for us or against us? The question is, are you for God? And you need to understand that it's not just you fighting the battle because so often when we are are tempted and under trial and our faith is being tested, we resort to our own means in order to get out of the situation. But the appearance of the commander of the Lord is to Joshua to say, we're going to fight this battle God's way or no way at all. And what that, is requ- what that requires is faith. Because then the instructions are given as to how Jericho will fall. 
Now what I would want to happen is for my army to be equipped and for the armies of Jehovah to be made vis visible and for them to, you know, it's sort of like that last scene in The Lord of the Rings where the army of the undead come through and just sweep everybody out of the way. That's what I'm looking for here. But is that how God decides to take Jericho? For six days, they march around Jericho once a day. This is what God called them to do. He didn't say, this is how I'm going to do it. He said, I just want you to do this. And they do that. And you know, by day two or three, the Israelites are looking at one another and saying, nothing's happening. Do you ever feel that way when your faith is being tested? God, I'm trying to be faithful, but nothing's happening. And then on the seventh day, they go around seven, is it seven or six? Six, uh, seven, uh, yes, so they get, well, let's just read it. Chapter 6, verse 3. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. And then they bear the trumpets, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast from the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Verse 8, and just as Joshua had commanded the people, they did this thing. But you shall not the other days, don't shout, don't make your voice heard, no word shall come out of your mouth again, if you'd only be silent. Until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he calls the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night. So they'd do a lap and they'd go back home. They'd do a lap and then they'd go back home. They did this for six days, and on the seventh day they did as the Lord. And what happened? The walls came down. But interestingly enough, we hear that the walls came down, but where was Rahab's apartment? It was in the wall, which means there actually was a piece of the wall that was left standing. Where Rahab was. And anybody who came into Rahab's place lived. And so Hebrews is saying, like Joshua, in Jericho, being faithful to God's word is going to make you look foolish. You can imagine the people in Jericho, right? You don't have to imagine. This is hilarious. They're just going on a walk. And they're not even saying anything. They're just sort of quietly going around. At first, they probably thought, this is just weird and creepy. And then after a while, it became comical. And then on the seventh day, you know, you had guys with their fold-out chairs and their PBR on ice, and they're sitting there, here they come again. Oh, they're doing more laps today. Whoa, look at this, big red-letter day. And then at the seventh lap, the trumpet sounds, the people shout, and the walls come down, PBR, folding chair, and all. Right? And yet there is still a huge part of us that thinks nothing's happening. Nothing's happening, God. I'm trying to live in faithfulness and obedience to your word, but nothing seems to be happening. But of course, he continues, and this is where we're going to go next week, in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What do the Hebrew Christians need? Endurance. What do they need increased? Faith in God. And how does that happen? By taking God at his word and living in faithfulness and obedience to him and learning more and more of the character and person of God that we see manifested in the lives of these saints. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.